Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. For the remainder of our all-inclusive series, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to bring this stack of books, actually a different stack of books, each week, and it's on the topic that I will actually be teaching on, and I'm gonna give them away after the gathering ends. So I'll teach, we'll have a kind of a response song time that we always have, and I'll come back up, I'll dismiss, but I'll stay up here with the books. If you wanna come and like take pictures of them, you wanna buy one or something like that, I can tell you more about each of them. Um, or like I said, if you wanna kinda of wait around till the end, especially if money's tight or something like that, I'd love to just give you a copy. These are extra copies that I bought specifically for today to give them away, so I would love to do that. Um, why am I doing that, though? <laughs> well, because I've long believed that education is, is really key when it comes to combating harmful ideologies, things like white supremacy and sexism and homophobia and classism and the like. And I've been incredibly blessed to learn from so many amazing folks on my journey as I've um, understood these things better, and I just I kind of want to pay it forward. And each of these books were written by an incredible Christian leader who I have tremendous respect for. Many of them have actually spoken during our like summer mixtape series that we have. This is a Latasha Morrison book. Um, there's a Jamar Tisby book in here, so you may recognize some of those names from our past summer mixtapes. Um, and they're just awesome. So I'm going to do that the next three weeks in this series. Easter is kind of a standalone message, but the rest of the three weeks in this series, I'm going to have a different stack up here. And I would love, if you want one, for you to come get one afterwards. And in his foreword to Jamar Tisby's book, which is, um, oh gosh, what's happening? This one, <laughs> The Color of Compromise, Lecrae wrote the foreword to this book. And he explains in the foreword what I hope will happen during this series as we dive deeply into Scripture and give away some of these books. This is what he says. Education should lead to informed action. And informed action should lead to liberation, justice, and repair. Through reading this book, we realize that if we built the walls on purpose, we need to tear down the walls on purpose. This demands political, social, and personal action that cuts through the theological and political lines. It requires us to hold our Bibles with clarity and strength while correcting our country's broken systems. Last Sunday... We began a new teaching series with the hope of seeing what Lecrae just described happen in our church here at Restore and in the church at large. And like I said, it's called All-Inclusive, God's Big, Beautiful Family. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at stories both from the life of Jesus and from the early church of how God radically included people in his family who had previously either been excluded or marginalized because of some intrinsic characteristic about them. 
So last week, we kicked it off by talking about folks who've been either excluded or marginalized based on age. In the coming weeks, we'll look at folks who have experienced the same thing because of their gender, socioeconomic status, and sexual orientation. But today, we're talking about race and ethnicity. Now, we have a long history of white supremacy in the American church. I hope that's not new information for you. If it is, here are a few historical facts. Did you know that over half of the published arguments in favor of American slavery were written by Christian pastors? Over half. Did you know that the colonization of the Americas, in which scholars estimate about 56 million indigenous people were killed, was led by Christians and fueled by the heretical doctrine of manifest destiny? Did you know that the Ku Klux Klan is and has always been an explicitly Christian organization? Did you know that lynchings were often scheduled for Sunday afternoons so people could attend church, grab lunch, and attend the lynchings? Did you know that the largest Protestant denomination in the world, the Southern Baptist Convention, was founded in America in 1845 for the sole purpose of allowing clergy and missionaries to continue enslaving black people without losing their status as pastors or missionaries? Did you know how long it took them to repent? 150 years. The first public apology did not happen until 1995. 1995. Sometimes this stuff can feel really distant, but it's not. It can feel like, yeah, that was bad back in the day, but that's behind us now, right? But because so much of the American church was built on this foundation of white supremacy, we are still dealing with the consequences today. We experienced it here at Restore just last year. Some of y'all know that we started a sister church on campus at the University of Texas at Austin called Moon Tower. We've been in the process of starting that for a couple of years. And we've been raising money for it for a couple of years, just like kind of we did at the very beginning of Restore. And so Restore was coming to give significant financial support, and we were rallying other support from, from churches and denominations and networks and all of that kind of stuff to help get, and this is what you do when you church plant, help get a new church off the ground. You kind of give it seed money, two or three years, help it get off the ground, become financially self-sufficient as we have, and then move forward. So that's what we were doing. We did that for a few years. We raised uh, a few hundred thousand dollars in support and pledges over a few years and got all of that together. And then we went through the process of hiring the lead pastor. We had a bunch of applications, actually over 100. We had a whole team that went through them, um, had three final candidates, brought them all in, uh, did video interviews, all of that kind of stuff, and then ended up hiring somebody named Iva Robinson, who some of you have met. She's preached here a number of times. Um, Iva's a black woman. And we hired... <laughs> the day we hired Iva, and we put it on social media... Um, we lost $60,000 in support. $60,000 is pulled. Three different organizations pulled out. Two just were like, look, women can't do this. We know that. Scripture's clear. Blah, blah, blah. I pushed them on it, right? I was like, well, you know, we have women elders. Like, my bosses, some of them are women, right? You know that. They're like, yeah, but they're not, like, up front, you know? Like, nobody sees them. It's like, oh, so this isn't even like theological conversation. This is like an aesthetic conversation. <laughs> One of them explicitly said, it's not even just that she's a woman, it's that she's a black woman. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, you know, their theology is really messed up. 
The American church has a complex history with racism. And it's not just far away, the past. It's real and it's present. And we have to make choices to do something about it. Because if we don't make intentional choices to divest from these systems that were built hundreds of years ago in this country, specifically in the church, we are going to perpetuate these awful things. As we've seen last year here at Restore. But even though all of that is true, it's also true that essentially every liberation and civil rights movement in American history has been led by followers of Jesus. Amazing Christian leaders like Cesar Chavez, Dr. King, Sojourner Truth, Mitsui Endo, Dolores Huerta, Dorothy Day, William Wilberforce, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, the list goes on and on. All of them were empowered by their faith in Christ as they fought against racism and ethnocentrism. All that to say, Christians have a complicated history with racism and ethnocentrism in America. And actually, this complicated history goes all the way back, beyond America, to the first century church, talked about in the book of Acts. In some ways, that's tragic, right? Because it shows how pervasive this problem is. But in another way, it's beautiful, because it means we can learn from how the church in Acts handled it. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning as we look at how the first church dealt with the problem of ethnocentrism. Now, if you've never heard this story before, I'm telling you it's going to blow you away. The early church did some incredible, incredible things. I can't wait to dive into it with you. So we're going to be in the book of Acts for the rest of our time together. You can turn there um, or the verses will also be on the screen. Now, if you don't have much familiarity with the biblical story or you just need a quick refresher, let me kind of lay out a quick timeline for us. So Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament after the four accounts of Jesus' life written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also called the Gospels. Now, you may remember that all those accounts end with the death, burial, and then miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the book of Acts picks up right where those four books leave off, specifically right where Luke's account leaves off, because Luke is actually the author of both Luke and Acts. Now, Luke was a pretty incredible guy. We find out later in the biblical story that he is both a physician and a historian who probably accompanied the Apostle Paul on several of his missionary journeys as he started churches all over the Near East. Now, here's another thing. Luke is a Gentile which is another way of saying he wasn't Jewish. Now, many of you probably know that Jesus was Jewish and that the early converts, most of them to Christianity, were also Jewish. But again, Luke was not. Now, this is a really big deal because there was deep ethnic animosity between Jews and Gentiles during this time, and it spilled over into the early church. There was even division and strife between Jewish Christians on what language they spoke, or what country they came from, or what culture they were most influenced by. But from the very beginning of the church, God was on a mission to break down walls between people, especially walls based on ethnicity, especially walls based on ethnicity and culture. We see this clearly on the day that the first church begins. So there's a group of about 100 people led by Peter and Mary Magdalene, some other disciples, and they've been meeting every day together since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, where he told them, hang tight, the Holy Spirit's coming. Y'all meet together, pray together, and wait. 
So they were in eager anticipation of this day that Jesus talked about when the Holy Spirit was going to come. And finally it comes. Acts 2, starting in verse 1. They call this the day of Pentecost. So it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, pause for a second. These tongues are not the ones you think of maybe in more charismatic churches that require interpretation. These tongues, specifically described in this passage, are actually various languages. So everybody was speaking different languages. So listen to what happens next. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who were speaking Galileans, which means they all spoke the same language, but we're hearing it in our own. Then how is it that each of us hears this in our native language? And then there's a little ellipsis there, because that's where Luke mentions 18 different countries, languages, and ethnicities who were represented there that day. 18 different ones, all hearing in their own language. It says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Isn't that amazing? This is the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does in the church. Break down the dividing walls between people and declare the wonders of God to everyone. Ethnicity wasn't a barrier. Culture wasn't a barrier. Even language wasn't a barrier. This is the very first thing that God does in the church. Breaks down walls. And now that everyone is gathered around this small group of Jesus followers, Peter gets up and preaches the very first sermon inside of the very first church. And he starts by going back to a prophecy about that day of Pentecost from the Old Testament book of Joel. Here's what he says. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, did you catch that in there? The opening lines of the very first sermon in the very first church boldly declare that God intends for all people to be included in his family. Regardless of age or gender or class or ethnicity or anything else, now, I cannot begin to tell you how outrageous this sermon would have been in the first century patriarchal society in which it was preached. Because this was a world where only men of a certain age, ethnicity, and status had rights. Nobody else did. This is a radical message. And that day, 3,000 people responded to that radical message and decided to become followers of Jesus. And the leaders of the first church baptized them right then and there. It's a truly beautiful scene. But just like with any group of people coming together with all different kinds of backgrounds, it isn't long before some problems start to arise. Prejudices and issues they thought had been fixed when God declared all people worthy of his family, they kind of start to bubble back up in this first church. And many of these issues centered around the fact that Jewish culture, not Judaism, the religion, but a specific brand of Jewish culture was dominant in the early church, specifically those from Galilee. Remember, they said, aren't all of these Galileans? This happened because most of the early church leaders were all from Galilee. So they spoke the same language, they had the same culture, but now the church is filled with Jews from other places who don't speak the same language, Jews who are actually more Greek in culture because they grew up way outside of the area, 
non-Jewish converts, and a whole bunch of other people. Now, these ethnic and cultural divisions begin to manifest into a very specific problem. Luke tells us what that problem is in Acts 6, verse 1. He says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, I told you earlier, right, there are fault lines between Jews and Gentiles, but again, there are also fault lines between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. Now, the easiest way to think about this is majority culture versus minority culture, right? The majority culture, the Hebraic Jews, they were all from Galilee. They spoke the same language. They were kind of the original church leaders and members. They are marginalizing the minority culture. It's based upon ethnicity, culture, language. Commentating on this passage, Dominique Gilliard says this, the Hellenist widows felt as if their outsider status was causing them to be overlooked and marginalized in the church's distribution of food. The Hebraic widows had advocates at the table of power, as well as cultural, linguistic, and relational advantages that led them to receive superior treatment. They had privilege. Meanwhile, the Hellenistic widows, they lacked representation at the decision-making table and were without an advocate in leadership who saw their suffering and identified with their marginalized experience. Consequently, the church did not care for Hellenistic widows with the same care, intentionality, and love as it did for the Hebraic widows. The exclusively Hebraic leadership had a blind spot, and the distribution disparity went unacknowledged until Hellenistic Jews brought a formal complaint. This matter was one of the earliest challenges the church faced as it started becoming multicultural. Now, I want you to try to imagine what would happen, what might happen, in a modern church if an issue like this was brought up. Many of us don't have to imagine. We've experienced it. I've been on a church staff when it was accused of giving one race or ethnicity preference over another. Let me tell you, it was not handled well. The leadership immediately became defensive. They started gaslighting those who brought the complaint, calling them crazy, saying they they didn't know what they were talking about, and even blame-shifting to say it was actually the marginalized group's fault because of some defect within their culture. It was ugly. I saw this again when everything happened with Ivor last year. With that group that said, we can't support her because she's a black woman, I pointed out that there seemed to be, maybe, some racism at play in that decision. And I was yelled at on a Zoom call, and then they said that I was racist, because I brought it up. I made it about race. They didn't make it about race. I made it about race. I very politely said, I honestly don't know any of you well enough to know and make a discernment as to whether you specifically are racist or not, but I do know this threatening to pull funding due to a pastor's skin color is the definition of racist. You are doing racist things. And it's not okay. And again, it didn't go well. Because the truth is that most of us have a tendency to get defensive when racial or ethnic problem is brought to our attention. But my friends, that is not the way of Jesus. It's never how we should respond. And thankfully, beautifully, it's not how the first church responded at all. So look at what happens right after this is brought to their attention. Verse 2. So the 12, that's kind of the the ones that were with Jesus all the time, the 12 disciples. They all gathered together. They gathered all the disciples, everybody together, and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, I know leaders saying we shouldn't neglect the ministry of the Word of God to wait on table. It sounds like a little pompous, right? It's kind of like, well, this is, way, this is beneath us. But that's why understanding the context and the language of all of this is so important. Because serving at tables is actually talking about way more than just giving out food. See, the word for table here is actually better translated money table. It's what we might call a bank account. This is where all of the church's finances were kept. So these daily distributions mentioned in verse 1 were way more than food. Most likely it was distribution of the fund mentioned in Acts 2 and Acts 4, if you remember those passages. It's the one where anyone who had extra made donations so that anyone who didn't have enough, like widows, could get whatever they needed. So this whole fund that the church had, they, somebody was neglecting specifically the Hellenistic widows in the distribution of this fund. And managing the daily distribution was a vitally important job. And like I said, unfortunately, it was being done in a way that marginalized people based on their ethnicity and culture. Now, notice, when the first church leaders hear about this problem, they don't ignore it, they don't push it aside, they don't make excuses, and they don't get defensive. They don't say things like, stop making everything about race, or y'all are just overreacting. Or yeah, like, we are all Hebraic Jews, but that has nothing to do with any of this. You're making it about race. No, they listen. And they say, this is not okay. And they do something about it. In this case, doing something about it meant selecting a group of leaders who would be tasked with making sure it doesn't happen again. And I want you to look at who gets appointed. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, and they presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, you may not be able to tell at first glance, but this is an incredible list of leaders. Does anyone know why? Because every single one of them is a Hellenist. Every single one of these leaders came from the group that was being marginalized. We know from their names and from elsewhere in Scripture that each and every one of the seven folks elected to solve the problem of the Hellenistic widows being overlooked were Hellenists themselves. Earlier we said this is a majority culture versus minority culture issue. The majority culture is marginalizing the minority culture based upon ethnicity. So how do these majority culture leaders address this issue? By appointing and empowering minority culture leaders. They also don't make assumptions about what the minority culture needs. These Hellenists are given positions of authority and empowered to fix the problem in the way that they think is best. Now, it's important to point out this isn't like tokenization, right? It's not just inviting a black choir into an all-white church for one Sunday and then pretending that centuries of systemic racism are fixed. This is real change, The early church addressed the problem of ethnic marginalization not just by including previously excluded people, but by making sure they were represented in positions of power and leadership so that it never happened again. As we watch the early church progress throughout Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we see that ethnic division is an ongoing issue. When large numbers of Gentiles began joining, it became really difficult. 
But the most prominent church planter and leader in the New Testament, the guy I talked about earlier named Paul, he addresses it head on. In fact, his whole letter to the Galatian church is about combating somebody called the Judaizers, this group of people. The Judaizers were a group of Hebraic Christians in the early church who required converts to become Jewish before they were allowed to become Christians. Or to put it another way, minority ethnicities were being required to leave their culture behind and adopt the majority culture before they were allowed to be a part of the church. Now, obviously, we hear that and we think, like, that's terrible. That's wrong. Nobody should have to do that. But it still happens today. I can't tell you how many black, indigenous, and people of color who have told me they didn't just have to become a Christian to fit into the church. They had to become some version of white, too. In this book, Michelle Reyes, who's a local Austin pastor, she tells a story about being told that she needed to better hide her Indianness if she was going to call herself a Christian. In Galatians, Paul strictly condemns the Judaizers and their attempts to impose their culture on people instead of sharing the gospel with them. In chapter 2, he talks about opposing Peter to his face. Peter was the head of the church in Jerusalem and a former, like, best friend of Jesus because Peter was allowing himself to be influenced by those Judaizers and was complicit in marginalizing these minority cultures. And then in the Galatians 3, Paul famously says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now these verses are not about uniformity. They're about unity and equality within diversity. Right? He's not saying there are no more men and women. He's saying there's no more hierarchy between genders. He's not saying there should be no more ethnic identities. He's saying there should be no more marginalization or segregation between ethnic groups. He's not saying there are no distinctions between people. He's saying that our distinctions have to stop keeping us from being a family. Becoming a follower of Christ is a transnational phenomenon. We aren't meant to leave our uniqueness behind. In fact, a big group of diverse people coming together as a family is exactly what God has in mind for his church. We know this from the picture that we have of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation. It says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This verse is really important because it lets us know that the beauty of humanity in its final and glorified and redeemed state still has every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. Humanity at its best is diverse. And in the new heaven and new earth, even with all the sin and brokenness gone, our cultural and ethnic identities still endure. In fact, they're celebrated, right, in Revelation. So what should we do about the racial and ethnic divides that still exist in church today? Well, over the last few years, the answer has been this kind of buzzy word, diversity, right? Businesses have diversity task forces, and schools have diversity quotas, and some churches even have diversity as a core value. Restore is one of those churches. That's because diversity is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's God-honoring. But here's the problem. 
The problem is pursuing diversity for diversity's sake. What I mean by that is that when someone says they want a, a diverse company or a diverse school or a diverse church, many times they don't really know why, right? It's just like, this is, this is right. Like, this is what people say that we're supposed to do. Honestly, it's been true for me in the past. Early on in Restore, I, I, I wanted it to be diverse. That's why we have it as a core value. But I didn't really know why, aside from being like, well, I, I want to be like that group in Revelation 7, right, where we're all like together. But over the last few years, I've come to realize that diversity is good for so many more reasons than that. Diversity is good because we make better decisions when we're diverse, especially in leadership. We learned that from the church in Acts 6. We hurt less people inadvertently when we're diverse. And we more fully represent the image of God when we're diverse. But we still have the problem of pursuing diversity for diversity's sake. And a few years ago, I was listening to a woman named Austin Channing Brown speak. She's the author of a book called I'm Still Here, Black, Dig Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And she was doing a Q&A about racial justice at this uh, Christian conference that I was at when a white pastor asked, what can I do to make my congregation more diverse? It's a beautiful, genuine question. Like, I, I want this. How do we make it happen? And her answer, y'all, it floored me. And it's not an exaggeration to say it completely changed the way I think about these things, the way I lead when it comes to diversity. Here's what she said. The question shouldn't be how many people of color come to your church. The question must be, even if people of color never come to your church, will you still stand with them and fight for justice? When we pursue diversity, we often get tokenism. But when we pursue justice, we often get beautiful diversity. Jamar Tisby says it like this, multiracial churches often fail because they make diversity the aim while leaving issues of justice and equity virtually unaddressed. So what do we do about it? Well, like that first church, the church today needs to, to listen without defensiveness when racial or ethnic problems arise. We need to make sure that marginalized and minority groups are empowered and in positions of leadership. And then we need to come together and pursue justice as one big, beautiful, messy, diverse family. What will happen when we do this? Well, look at what happened to the first church. Acts 6, verse 7. So God's message continued to spread, and the number of believers greatly increased. That's the verse right after they solved that problem of the Hebraic and the Hellenistic widows. Isn't that incredible? If we do this, I believe we will see the message of God's grace and hope and redemption continue to spread, and that more and more people will become followers of Jesus, just like the first church saw. In other words, we will see God's big, beautiful, all-inclusive family continue to grow as more people experience his love. And no matter how messy or difficult things get, that, y'all, is always worth it. Let me pray. Lord God, I am so grateful for who you are and for who you made your church to be. I'm grateful that the very first thing you ever did when it came to your church was to drop that Holy Spirit on that group of people so that every single person present could hear the wonders of who you are and the wonders of your love in their own language.
that the first thing you did was to break down every racial and ethnic and language and cultural barrier and say, everyone has a place in my family. Everyone has a seat at my table if they want one. All we have to do, God, is to call on your name. Peter ends that sermon by saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter our age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, lifestyle, background, anything, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I pray, God, we would keep that in mind. Anything and everything we do as a church here at Restore and your collective church all over the world, that we would learn from that church in Acts 6, learn how to to not get defensive when problems of race and ethnicity arise, that we will learn to give away power and influence rather than hoard it. And God, that we would come together as a big, beautiful, messy, diverse family and share your love with each other and share your love with the world. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.